how widespread should this be? How often do we want to be subject to this? When can we be comfortable that our faces aren't being scanned, that we aren't being identified? Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is the second half of my two-part conversation with Kashmir Hill about her groundbreaking reporting on facial recognition software and why we might be living in the twilight of anonymity. She focuses specifically on one secretive startup at the center of this technology, Clearview AI, which I was somewhat surprised to learn had roots in the MAGA movement. So if you missed part one last week, I'd recommend starting there because today in part two, we pick up where we left off and dive into technical sweetness and the lack of ethical considerations by the people building these new technologies. We talk about the different approaches to privacy laws in the United States and Europe and how companies are navigating this uneven terrain. Then we get into the trend of law enforcement agencies getting around constitutional protections by buying information from private companies. And then lastly, we talk about the broader implications of facial recognition and what the future of privacy and anonymity might look like in this age of ubiquitous surveillance. This was a fascinating discussion for me, so I hope you enjoy it. Kashmir Hill is a tech reporter at The New York Times and the author of Your Face Belongs to Us, a secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it. And now here's part two of my discussion with Kashmir. A little earlier, you mentioned uh, we can only trust a technology something to the extent that we can trust the person who who holds it, right? Um, this raises the term you introduced in the book or you surfaced in the book, t- technical sweetness. Um, a couple of years ago, I talked with um, two Stanford professors uh, who were co-authors of uh, System Error, uh, where big tech went wrong. And one of the key takeaways from their book was that tech companies, by default, ask themselves um, whether they can do something and how they can do something, solve a technical problem, uh, without any of the ethical deliberations that you would want in the evolution of a technology. So they don't ask themselves whether they should. Um, and you know, the, the most radical form of this ideology, I think we should note, considers uh, all technical progress virtuous in and of itself. Um, but I wonder if you can expand on that role that technical sweetness has played in pushing this tech forward um, and how you think about um, the degree to which ethics are baked into the technology itself uh, without really philosophers or ethicists being involved in the development. Yeah, I mean, I so I I often think of this as the the Jurassic Park problem. You know, they uh, uh, they they were so excited about making the dinosaurs, they didn't think about whether they should make the dinosaurs. Um, and I certainly encountered this. I was going back for the book. I, I really wanted to understand the kind of path of facial recognition technology, and because I think technology in and of itself is is not inherently interesting. It's more people the, uh, and and how it's going to affect people's lives but i was talking to these 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 early engineers who worked on it you know made ba- breakthroughs uh in the 80s and 90s um often on the behest not of the government but of private companies um like a ratings company that wanted to put facial recognition in TVs so it could know who was who was sitting in front of them uh and and watching things they could better understand if you know this should be 
ad advertising time for women or men or young people or old people. Uh, and I would say, you know, you were working on this. You made this critical breakthrough that kept driving facial recognition forward to the point it was today, to the point it is today where it's incredibly powerful. And I said, you know, were you thinking about the implications um, of, of kind of developing this technology, what it would mean for our privacy, for our anonymity? Um, and they said, no, not really. We just weren't thinking about that. Like it, it barely worked at the time. It was hard to imagine it ever working at the scale of of thousands or millions or billions of people. Um, we just wanted to see if we could get computers to see. Uh, and and so yeah, so they're developing this. And meanwhile, eventually it gets so powerful <laughs> and widely available. Like one thing that shocked me. Um, about Clearview AI is that Juan Dante, as I said, he made Facebook quizzes. He made iPhone games. He wasn't necessarily like a biometric technology right. genius. <laughs> and I asked him, I mean, how did you go from, uh, he made an app called Trump Hair that would put, you know, Donald Trump's hair on, on some, on people's faces and photos. I said, how did you go from that to building this, I mean, revolutionary, you know, earth shattering mm. technology? Uh, a facial recognition technology. And he said, yeah, you know, I um, I went on Twitter and I started following machine learning experts. I went on GitHub and I looked up facial recognition and I was just kind of staring at him. And I start laughing and he starts laughing. And he goes, I know, it sounds like I Googled flying car and then I built one. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, I was standing on the shoulders of giants. And it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. You know, Facebook was developing this technology. And the thing about the people that are working on this kind of AI, machine learning, neural networks, is there was this culture of sharing what you developed. And so they, they would publish what they were doing. Uh, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around it. In the book, I say it's as if, you know, Coca-Cola decided to release the recipe for what it had made for, for everyone else to, to, to make themselves. Um, but he said, you know, I was standing on the shoulders of giants. I was, you know, using research that had come before me. And and then it gets put in the hand of this, this, this young guy who is just trying to kind of make it in the tech field. He, he, he wants to be famous. He wants to make an app that everybody uses. And I asked him, I said, okay, well, you've created Clearview AI. Um, you've done something that I would later find out Facebook and Google had also done, but decided not to release because they did think it was too dangerous. Um, they didn't want to be the companies to put it out there, but he did. I said, you've broken through this taboo. Um, as you said, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. There's a whole bunch of other people that can stand on the shoulders with you. There's going to be other people who created this. Clearview AI decided to only allow police to use their technology ultimately. But I said, other companies are going to release this publicly. Like, you know, you've what you have created may end privacy and anonymity as we know it. This might be really widespread. It might be on everyone's phones. Like, how do you feel to be the one that's pushing this out into the world? And uh, he said, that's a really good question. I'll have to think about it. And so you have this long chain of people that are all developing this technology. And all along the way, nobody is thinking about the implications. They keep expecting someone else to do it. Like they're the technologist. They develop. Uh, they do what's possible. 
they want to solve this puzzle, they want to put it out into the world, and then they figure there's someone else who will decide what the rules are for this technology or what the guardrails will be. That's kind of not their not their job. You know, that's it raises the big difference between Clearview and other companies, uh, which 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 is not their technical uh, ability, right? It's not the actual technology um, beneath what they're offering. It's what they're willing to let people do with it. So you mentioned Facebook and Google that developed this and then decided not to release it publicly. How have different companies approached this question and arrived at different conclusions? And um, and are we now having this conversation on the eve of, you know, perhaps another company taking an, an, an altogether different approach, um, do you think? Yeah, so right now, so Clearview AI, you know, has this database of 40 billion photos only allowing law enforcement to use it, and only in the U.S., in part because there was such a backlash uh, after my initial report about Clearview, and privacy regulators in other countries said, okay, this is illegal. You are violating our privacy laws. You can't just gather a whole bunch of people's photos without their consent and subject it to biometric analysis. Um, but then there's another company called PimEyes. Uh, it's based, the, the corporate headquarters are in the UAE, the, the person who runs it is in the country of Georgia, and it's a public face search engine. Uh, their database is about 2 billion photos, and it's only from news sites. So it's kind of the most public of photos. But basically anyone can use it. Uh, anyone listening to this, that they kind of want to have a sense of how powerful facial recognition is or see where their face is, you can go to PimEyes. You're supposed to only upload your own face. It's supposed to be a search engine for you to find out where you appear on the internet. Um, but I have a subscription, which allows me to see where an image came from um, and the full image. And it's $30 per month. And it lets me do 25 searches a day. And there's no technical measure in place to make sure I'm only searching one face, my own face, 25 times a day. Um, yeah, there's another public face search engine similar to PimEyes. Uh, Facebook and Google uh, still haven't released this technology, but uh, Facebook now Meta, their chief technology officer, Andrew Bosworth, has said, I would mm. love to put facial recognition capabilities into their augmented reality glasses so that you could look at someone and know their name. He said, you know, who hasn't been to a cocktail party where you run into somebody who you've met before, you should know their name, you can't remember. He said, we could just we could just give you their name. It would be so easy. But, you know, we're, we're worried. We're worried about the kind of legal regulatory environment for that. We think it would be illegal in some places like Illinois. One of the, the few states has a really strong law on this. But I could imagine a world where maybe Facebook did do that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that they would just force it on all of us as they have forced certain things in the past. I could imagine it being a kind of opt-in environment where At first. maybe, uh, yeah, like Kashmir, maybe I'd say, okay, I'm a journalist. I'm pretty public. I'll just make my face public. And anyone who sees me on the street wearing Facebook's augmented reality glasses can know who I am. They can come up to me, you know, give me their tips, tell me great stories. <laughs> uh, maybe somebody else who's more private would say, okay, I'll let my Facebook friends you know, who I'm connected to identify me or friends of their friends, or maybe you mark your face private. But I can imagine a world, this would be a very American approach to facial recognition, but where you have privacy settings for your face like you do for your Facebook profile. Um, 
And I've actually, I've asked this question. I've been on book tour and I've asked different audiences, okay, if this existed, who here would opt in to having their face recognized? And in San Francisco, half of the room raised their, raised their hands. In New York, it was just a few. Uh-huh. And then I just got back from Italy last week in both Milan and Turin. Nobody raised their hands. They shook their heads. They're like, no, we don't <laughs> want that. But the, a lot of the companies developing this technology are in San Francisco where there's such a different approach to what is wanted. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting. It's interesting you mentioned that in Italy because I think the Europeans maybe have a different relationship with the idea of privacy or their own data than we do in the United States, right? Because they led with GDPR, which gives Europeans um very strong protections over their personal data that we don't have in the United States. I thought that that um, uh, that contrast was was important. You mentioned there was a story about a guy I think who was a German citizen um, who uh, wrote to Clearview and asked for all of the data that they had on him, and they were required by EU law to give it to him. Um, what protections do they have that? We don't in the United States. Yeah, it's so it's so different. And covering privacy for 10 years, it's just so striking, the different approach in Europe versus the U.S. Uh, the simplistic version is that in, in the U.S., we believe we have freedom to things. And in Europe, they have freedom from things <laughs> being done to them. Uh, but Europe just has a stronger right to privacy uh, that says that, for example, companies can't use your data without your consent. And we have very little of that in the U.S. Um, and, and so when it comes to facial recognition, it's uh, all of these European countries and Australia and Canada said that what Clearview AI did was illegal. And so Clearview pulled out of those countries. And those countries, um, Italy, Greece, France, the U.K., said, delete our citizens from your database. But Clearview said, how do we know if a face is Italian uh, or or it's American? We can't really do that. Um, and uh, but but individual European citizens could could reach out to Clearview and say, "Hey, I want to see my report. I want to be deleted." And so Matthias Marx is one of those people that that went ahead and did that with Clearview, also with that site PimEyes. But then, in order to keep him out of the da- out of the database, they said, "We're going to have to keep your face so we can block it." from being collected again, because Clearview is collecting new images all the time. They say they're collecting 75 million images per day. Um, But since the book was published, Clearview says they're not respecting GDPR anymore. They're not going to do those opt-outs. And so they're just not complying with European law, which is, this is where facial recognition technology and AI in general is complicated because it's all operating on a global scale. And so um, regulating it is difficult. Whereas here in the U.S., yeah, there's no real law that's applicable to what Clearview AI is doing on the federal level. And there's a few states that have laws, Illinois being the main one. Speaking of law, you, you, you write about the ACLU a bit, and there's a very, very interesting paradox um, that you explain when you're writing about the conversation within the ACLU after Clearview's existence became um, public. You write, Clearview was part of a trend the organization was seeing 
private vendors selling law enforcement agencies the fruit of surveillance methods that would likely be unconstitutional if deployed by the government itself. And a little later in that paragraph, police didn't need a warrant. They just needed to pay for the intel. Can you explain the tension within the ACLU, which is traditionally sort of uh, stood up for the rights of citizens against governments, right? And and the the protections that we have constitutionally are designed to protect us from the government, not necessarily from private industry. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So the, so so the ACLU is very. Uh, protective of our right to challenge the government, to protest, and um, protecting us from some privacy intrusions. And so when they saw Clearview AI and what it had created, uh, they did not like it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they were worried, you know, this is the tool. Uh, You have people getting together for a Black Lives Matter protest, um, protesting against police brutality, and the police can just take a photo and know everyone who's there. And that could be very chilling. Um, At the same time, what Clearview AI did was collect photos from the public internet, from social media sites, but, but photos that were public. And so Clearview AI said, we have a First Amendment right to do this. We are not, you know, hacking into anybody's Facebook account. People made this public. We're just going on the internet and we're collecting faces that anybody can see. We're just like Google. Um, In the same way Google, you know, crawls the internet so that you can Google, you know, Kashmir Hill and, and see everywhere where her name appears. Now we've just reorganized the internet by face. And you're gonna, you know, Google Kashmir Hill's face and just see all the photos she's in on the internet. There's nothing intrusive about this. We have the right to do this. And so I think the ACLU was very, ACLU is also very protective of the First Amendment and people who have sometimes, you know, unpopular uh, opinions. They've famously protected KKK's right to uh, have parades and and public gatherings. Um, And so they were a bit torn on this. Uh, But they ultimately came down on the side of anonymity Privacy is is too important to the way that we live, and we really need to challenge this. And they did so in Illinois, um, because Illinois has this very special law, um, unique law passed in 2008, one of the rare laws that move faster than technology, called the Biometric Information Privacy Act. And it says that a company cannot collect somebody's biometric information, including their face print, without consent, or they face a very big fine. And so the ACLU decided to um, file a class action in Illinois saying that what Clearview did violated this law. Clearview hired very famous First Amendment attorney Floyd Abrams, a long history of defending the First Amendment back to the New York Times and their right to publish the Pentagon Papers. And he made that argument. He said, hey, you know, this is just public information. We're basically like journalists gathering what's on the public internet and making it, you know, we're organizing it, we're making it searchable. It did not end up flying in Illinois. The judge said, okay, yes, you have the right to gather the gather the photos. And if you want a human being to look through them, that's fine. You don't have the right to create this kind of biometric algorithm, you know, uh, identifier uh, and use that to search them. And uh, ultimately, the ACLU and Clearview AI wound up settling and Clearview agreed to only sell their database to law enforcement and not to companies 
or private individuals. Um, so we, we haven't seen this kind of go all the way to the Supreme Court, but there is this question of, should this company be allowed to do this? Uh, I think if the government did this, if the you know, the U.S. government, if the FBI uh, decided to start making a database of faces just scraped from the internet, I think people might have a problem with that. They might say, yeah, that's that's an unconstitutional search and seizure. Um, you know, we don't want you going through our private photos. But because Clearview AI is doing it and the government's just collecting from them, it kind of is an end run. Yeah. Around around those questions, how 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 big of an impact is this having on the broader civil rights and privacy rights landscape outside of Illinois? If it hasn't gone to the Supreme Court yet, probably because there isn't a suitable vehicle uh, yet, or hasn't been yet. But um, where does the debate and maybe the actors within the debate? How does that landscape look right now? So there's there's lawsuits all around the country. There's uh, there's in Illinois. There's another one in California, which has a kind of state privacy law. There's one in Vermont, filed by the Vermont Attorney General, violating a data broker law. Um, but Clearview AI hasn't really kind of gotten a big pushback. Mm. I mean, it seems like people are pretty comfortable with the idea of um, police searching this public-ish <laughs> database to identify people to solve crimes. Um, uh, even though there are some big questions there, but at this point it's kind of, it's kind of playing out with individual police departments. Mm. Um, I think this is really interesting. Like the Detroit police department has been thinking a lot about how do we use facial recognition technology? And it's significant because Detroit is actually a place where there's been three false arrests based on face recognition searches where they ran a search of somebody, they got a hit, um, they wound up confirming it with an eyewitness, where an eyewitness, is, well, eyewitness said, yeah, that's the person that was involved in that crime. Um, but there you can run into uh, a real danger of a bad feedback loop, where you've gotten this computer to go through millions of photos, find a person who looks most like the person in the photo, and then an eyewitness agrees with the computer, even though it's the wrong person. So, um, uh, had two arrests. I talk about one in the book, Robert Williams, arrested yeah. for shoplifting, uh, arrested right before his birthday, held overnight, charged, had to hire a lawyer. Another man, Michael Oliver, uh, arrested for stealing a, a smartphone. And then the most recent was Portia Woodruff, eight months pregnant, arrested on Thursday morning, getting her kids ready for school uh, for carjacking that happened the month before by a woman who was not visibly pregnant. And uh, she was taken to jail. She ended up in the hospital that night because she was so stressed out, dehydrated, needed fluids. Um, I mean, this is just, when you have these kinds of encounters, it's it's terrible. And uh, they're basically arrested for the crime of looking like someone else. The jury police department says, we don't want this to happen. You know, this was bad police work. This is not the technology. This is that we didn't do enough gathering of other evidence in these cases. And we want to do this right. They're not using Clearview AI. Um, in part, I think, because they're worried about the implications of searching through 40 billion photos <laughs> to identify somebody. Uh, it increases the the chance that you might make a mistake. They're only using it for serious crimes, uh, like murder, you know, assaults, home invasions. Uh, and they're no longer doing uh, arrests based on facial recognition combined with eyewitnesses. 
And so you're basically at this point, it's like up to individual police departments. Uh, so it's really happening at the local level. Um, there's some, some cities that have banned it, San Francisco, uh, Portland, um, um, some some cities around Boston have said, we don't want police using this yet. We, we really need to assess the civil liberties here and the possibility for, for algorithmic bias. But yeah, I mean, we are in the melting pot right now. And it's, yeah, as you, like listeners, as citizens, it's the time to find out what is my department doing and thinking about what you want to happen because it is really like local government here, city councils that are making these big decisions. Um, and some places are kind of recording how often they use facial recognition. Some aren't. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, we're really in the, the early days, but I think that it could kind of solidify very quickly, which is why I wanted to write the book now. Like, I, I think these are big questions that we need to answer. So what does the partisan landscape look like uh, on this issue? Is it actually still somehow bipartisan. You mentioned that in the book at, at a certain stage, this was one of the issues that seemed to uh, freak everybody out uh, in, in perhaps equal measure. And so you had a lot of agreement across party lines. Is that still the case? Yeah, right now, in terms of doing something at the federal level, it seems to be coming more from the left and the Democrats in terms of bills that have been floated. Um, but it is truly a bipartisan issue. And I saw that over the years as, as, as facial recognition was kind of being debated in D.C. back in 2001 when it was deployed for the first time at the Super Bowl in Tampa. It was called, it was called the Snooper Bowl by the press. Um, Dick Armey, very, you know, uh, conservative Republican, teamed up with the ACLU to put out a press release saying, hey, this shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't be deploying facial recognition on crowds. That's an intrusion on civil liberties. As recently as 2018, there was a hearing uh, organized by John Lewis, the late John Lewis, you know, civil rights leader, Democrat, uh, leading the, the um, investigation into Trump. He paired up with Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan to do a hearing about facial recognition wow. technology. Very, you know, conservative on the right, uh, big supporters of Trump. And they said, we don't agree about much, the three of us, but we agree that we need to do something about facial recognition technology. It's too great a threat to our civil liberties. So it does seem like they're, they're, that something should happen. Yeah. You know, this is a bipartisan issue. And yet, for some reason, on the federal level, just... Not a lot of movement uh, yet. There, there has not been much movement. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it'll get invoked as we seem to be moving forward toward something on uh, social media, and uh, and the Hill seems to be a buzz about that. I just can't imagine how um, they wouldn't consider the entire landscape of data and privacy rights and uh, uh, sort of as a, as one big whole, which is um, what, how how I think it should be considered. But. Um, I mean, that may be the challenge, right? Maybe it's just too much. Yeah. So much data to be regulated. Yeah. Yeah, it does It does raise a question of what the what is the fundamental right we need to protect here? Um, and if you can come up with a principle that maybe you can, you know, establish something that the courts can then arbitrate individual cases later on. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about this tension between um, security and privacy. Um, do you think the debate can be reframed um, such that the invasion of privacy makes us less safe? 
um, you know, that that security and privacy are maybe not mutually exclusive or zero sum, because I do think that's the way we are sort of conditioned to think about the trade-offs here between uh, between security and privacy or anonymity and convenience. Is there a different way of thinking about the relationship between those things? So I don't think it's like two sides of a coin. It's a, more of a spectrum, right? Um, there are some ways in which it might make us more secure, um, and yet we lose freedom because of it. And ultimately, that's a less secure society. Um, uh, I mean, one way, let's just talk about it personally, um, how this could be used for your own personal security. So let's say your person going out to a bar on Saturday night, uh, there's a bunch of people there, and you've got an app on your phone or uh, PimEyes, which is browser-based, on your phone, and you're talking to somebody, they're telling you about themselves, and you're wondering, is this person who they say they are? So you take a little photo, and you search their face, and you find out their name, you can Google them, you get this information, and their bio lines up with what they've told you, and maybe you feel more confident being with that person. Um, on the flip side, let's say you're at a bar and there's some really creepy person who's staring at you obsessively. They keep talking, trying to talk to you. You do not want to talk to them. You're trying to avoid them. They take a picture of your face. Now they know your name. They can find your social media profile. Maybe they find out where you live. Um, so it's both things at the same time, right? It could protect your security or it could be used to invade your privacy and allow this person that you never want to see again to now figure out who you are and where you live. Um, so it is both things at the same time. Um, part of how we're addressing this right now, at least here in the U.S., is we're saying, okay, we're comfortable with Clearview AI um, selling this to police. Uh, we're, we, we trust the police to use this responsibly um, and to do the work that they're supposed to once they identify somebody. Uh, but it can lead to insecurity if for example, it's used irresponsibly, like the cases we talked about where people are falsely arrested, um, where police fall prey to automation bias, where the system tells them, this is your person, and they put too much trust in that. And then they see all other evidence as confirming that initial um, identification. And they, they go and arrest somebody who, who shouldn't be arrested, who should be living his life, be with his family, um, not spending a night in prison, not hiring a lawyer uh, to defend him against charges that are completely irresponsible. So, yeah, I mean, it, it can it can go it can go so many different ways that I think we need to think about it on a deeper level. Of okay, this is exists, it is out there. How widespread should this be? How often do we want to be subject to this? When can we be comfortable that our faces aren't being scanned, that we aren't being identified? You include a quote from Al Franken's former staffer, uh, Alvaro Bedoya, about what the future could look like. And he says, do I want to live in a society where people can be identified secretly and at a distance by the government? I do not. And I think I'm not alone in that. And there are so many stories in the book. Um, about people who were freaked out by facial recognition being used on them during a demo. And uh, as I was reading, I was thinking I would definitely be freaked out myself if someone, you know, showed this to me um, uh, in a demo. Although the, you know, the marketer in me would think, oh my God, this is so unbelievably powerful. Um, 
But it really invokes, I think, a much broader uh, question because um, you know any resistance that we might have to sacrificing our privacy or our anonymity, and I think those are two different things ultimately, um, has been quickly pacified by the uh, convenience offered by these tools. But the trade-off is usually um, you know obscured by a wall of legalese that we just click accept very quickly on. And as a species, I think we have proved fairly um, pliable to the technology companies. Um, and the cost has been more broad than just privacy. I mean, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but consider the mental health crisis that we are now, uh, I think, rightly outraged about um, and how indisputably linked it is to the rise of social media. Um, you also quote the science fiction writer William Gibson in the book discussing that the future is already here. It's just not that evenly distributed, which I thought was uh, brilliant and and true. And it made me think of all of the other technologies beyond facial recognition uh, that you don't discuss directly. But um, for someone who pays close attention, um, there, facial recognition technology is one sort of rising piece of a very broad landscape of technologies that are um, very quickly eroding uh, privacy uh, and anonymity. If you consider um, the aggregation of DNA with sites like Ancestry and 23andMe, uh, um, with you know vast databases of DNA records um, submitted voluntarily by customers, you have voice prints, which you did mention a few months ago. 404 Media, I think, broke a story about um, uh, a a marketing firm, a data firm in Georgia, um, announcing sort of broadcasting that your devices are listening to you actively. And they're selling that data to advertisers who want to advertise to you the moment you are talking about a thing, a product that you might be interested in. Um, then you have uh, behavior. I have concerns about that story. I'm very skeptical. Oh, are you skeptical? skeptical. Okay, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think they did enough okay. digging on that okay. story. Um, uh, ne- ne- nevertheless, <laughs> uh, the, the list goes on. I mean, behavior. I'm looking into it. I'll tell okay. you that, Ron. Oh, perfect. Okay. Um, um, uh, behavioral fingerprinting, which I'm sure you're aware of, uh, right? Which is the the, the unique signature that you um, that you give off in the way that you move your cursor around the web um, can be used to identify you, or uh, the the keystrokes, the pattern of your keystrokes. Um, this is offered, I think, by firms like Palantir. Um, uh, and then, obviously, there's state-level hacking software um, like Pegasus, which we've talked about before. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, and then there was that um, demonstration, I think, that Tristan Harris showed in a presentation uh, where these neural nets, the large language models, can now use uh, Wi-Fi signals to identify body uh, images through walls, um, and anybody's Wi-Fi router can now be hijacked to see what's going on inside their homes. Um, So I just want, I think, listeners to think about the broader landscape of technologies that are being used to uh, de-anonymize them and and whether there's anything, what they can do to um, maybe fight back or maybe secure their... um, their own privacy, their own anonymity, or maybe there's a different way they should be thinking about all these technologies. But um, you, 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 you write in the book about Minority Report, right? About the facial recognition of Minority Report. But the one thing you didn't uh, mention about Minority Report was the precox 
and the ability to use all of this data to predict what someone is going to do. And I couldn't help think about all of these tools as I'm reading your book, um, ultimately being aggregated uh, and, and centralized to paint uh, a nearly perfect picture of an individual and spit out highly accurate predictions of whether they would commit a crime in the future or, you know, fill in the blank of the ways you could use this data to try and predict the future. Um, that's a lot uh, to think about, but I just am curious how you think about all of this because you cover it every day. Um, and what do you do in your, in your day-to-day life to um, maybe guard against the future that is coming or that is here now, but it's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> wow. It's rare that somebody paints a more dystopian version of the world than I do. But congratulations. <laughs> I did not mean to. <laughs> you just did. <laughs> but look, right, technologically, that world is possible where all of our faces are known, all of our voices are known, all of our gates are known. You can identify us by our walk. Um, they have our DNA. You know, every glass and bit of hair you leave behind can be traced back to you. Like, we could live in that world. I hope we will choose not to. And I have some optimism from the past, and that is that we are in a kind of similar moment in the 1950s, 1960s, when there's the development of small listening devices, bugs, and wiretapping equipment. And there was a national panic about uh, the end of privacy in terms of your conversations, that any phone call that you make might be recorded um, because there were private detectives that were tapping lines all the time, hired by, you know, husbands trying to prove that their, their wives were cheating prove infidelity. Uh, Richard Nixon was recording every single conversation in the White House. Um, People were in a panic that you couldn't have a private conversation. And we passed laws that made it illegal to secretly record people, Um, uh, uh, made it illegal for uh, you to be wiretapped uh, and that the government needed to get a warrant, you know, to wiretap you. And so what you were talking about, this, this idea of a company that's secretly listening to us and giving us ads based on what we say, if they were doing that, that would be very illegal. <laughs> like, that would cost them a lot of money and somebody would probably go to jail. Um, we did pass laws to prevent that. And it's part of the reason why the surveillance cameras that are all around this country that many of us are passing, you know, hundreds of cameras every day in our workplaces, on the streets, uh, in grocery stores, they're only recording our images and not audio. They're not recording our conversations because we decided we didn't want to live in a world where everything we said was recorded all the time. Um, uh, said we don't want that. And so we're in that moment now. Like, what do we want the world to look like? Technologically, it is possible to do these things. Um, but I think that we can restrain them through norms, like what we do, what we want, and then very importantly, through laws, and then also the technology companies themselves, what they decide to send to market, um, offer to us. So, uh, yeah, Um, in terms of what people can do specifically about facial recognition technology, 
get yourself a very fashionable ski mask, <laughs> you know, that you can wear around. So do those work then? Does it Whenever you're doing something very private. The... Yeah, full cover, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. If you're going mask, to dinner okay. with your secret lover. Right. <laughs> you're going to dinner with your secret lover. Definitely both wear ski masks. <laughs> no one will think that's strange around you. Um, no, but but <laughs> just think about right now, think about think about what you're putting on the public internet. I'm a mother. I have two young children. I try not to post photos of them to the public internet. Sure, I still use Instagram. I have a private account. Uh, I text photos to my loved ones. Uh, but I'm not putting photos out there for all the world to see, uh, photos that will follow them for the rest of their lives, uh, trying to let them choose their own kind of privacy. Uh, I I know this is going to be, this may be surprising, but I do think people should go to PIM Eyes mm. and look up their faces mm. and see what's out there. It's it's not going to give you a clear view level search, but at least it'll show you if your your face kind of shows up on a news site if your face easily leads somebody to your name or to photos you don't want them to see. Uh, and PimEyes at this point has an opt-out system. So if there are photos you don't like or you don't want your face to be searchable, you can opt out of their, you can opt out of their search uh, so that it doesn't show up for other people. But yeah, and then it's just, you know, figuring out what you want and kind of through our democratic yeah. process, letting lawmakers know, you know, what should they do about facial recognition technology? Should they do something like in Illinois, where there's a law that says companies can't use this information without your consent? Um, should there be more oversight over how your police department's using facial recognition technology? Um, I think just being aware and kind of operating in this world, knowing that the power exists, yeah. and thinking about how you want the power to, to <laughs> manifest in your day-to-day -day life, is just a very important time um, uh, to be thinking about I totally this. Totally agree. Um, Kashmir Hill, uh, is there anything in the book uh, or otherwise that we didn't touch on that you um, that you want to mention? Dig into the only thing is Madison Square Garden. I think oh, is such yeah. a crazy example of. I feel like we should yeah. bring it up just because yeah, this is the it's why I mean <laughs> th th this is the venue I think um, that I was referring to in the intro about um, people that the mm -hmm. lawyers being turned away at the door because they were working on a case. Uh, you can fill in the details, but this is, it's still happening, right? They're still able to do this? Yeah. So Madison Square Garden put in, you know, uh, facial recognition systems for security reasons. I believe they did it around the time of the Emmys, and they may have been using it in the Taylor Swift model, where Taylor Swift has facial recognition cameras. It's been reported to identify mm. stalkers, to be aware of them if they're coming to her concert, to keep them out. But they're using it for security reasons. Somebody had a fight at the venue, you know, throw threw a beer bottle down on the ice during a hockey game. They would get on the ban list. But as I was finishing the book, I heard about something wilder that was happening. Um, uh, the first case I heard of is a mother who was taking her daughter's Girl Scout troop to see the Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall. And when she got to the door, uh, she got pulled aside and they said, you can't come in. Uh, because you're a lawyer and you work at a law firm that has a suit against Madison Square Garden, which owns Radio City Music Hall, and you're not welcome here until that suit is resolved or dropped. And it turned out uh, that Madison Square Garden had about 90 law firms on its ban list. It had gone to their the firm's websites and scraped the photos of the lawyers from their own bio pages. And they had thousands of lawyers on a ban list, and they couldn't go to Rangers games or Knicks games uh, or Mariah Carey concerts 
Uh, even if they had a friend buy the ticket, it didn't matter. They could be turned away at the door by face. And I actually, I wanted to see this happen. So I bought Rangers tickets for me and a personal injury attorney who was on the list. And, you know, thousands of people streaming into the garden. We go to the door, put our bags on the conveyor belt. By the time we picked them up, security guard walked up to us, asked her for ID and said, okay, sorry, you can't come in. And she said, I'm not working on any case against the garden. He said, it doesn't matter. Your whole firm's, you know, banned until it's done. And so, I mean, this was shocking to me. I just didn't think I would see a use case like this for another five or 10 years, kind of um, weaponizing the technology against your enemies. Um, But it was, yeah, I mean, it was just, it showed how the technology really could usher in this new era of discrimination where what is invisible about you could become visible. Let's say there's a list of people with certain political viewpoints or people who are vax or anti-vax or they're journalists, uh, you know, or they work for the government. There's just all these ways that you could be monitored or have services denied to you um, based on your face because, you know, being a lawyer is not a protected class. It harkens all the way back to the beginning with Wonton Tut and uh, the convention and wanting to ID, you know, uh, the libtards or whoever, right? Uh, um, yeah. What really worries me about facial recognition technology, it just takes like all these things that have happened on the internet, the data collection, the knowing who you are, seeing what you're doing, the kind of polarization of uh, I know what you are, I know what you believe, I hate you. You know, all of that can just be transferred to the real world because our face would become a way to unlock the kind of internet and what's knowable about us. And that's, that is that is one thing I find very chilling about that possible future. Since you mentioned protected class, how do you think we'll need to reassess discrimination um, with this much data at anyone's fingertips? I mean, I think we might, it's either reassessing discrimination, like, do we add protected classes that you can't discriminate against Uh, people based on their job? I don't know. Um, Or (laughs) do you regulate the means of discrimination, the facial recognition itself. Mm. So Madison Square Mm. Garden um, also owns a theater in Chicago, which is in Illinois. And so lawyers cannot be discriminated against at the Chicago theater by face because Madison Square Garden would need their consent to use their face prints. Um, so so they're still banned from the Chicago theater, uh, but they can't be kept out by face. So if a friend buys them a ticket, they can still get in. <laughs> <laughs> they need another way in. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, this has been terrific. I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, if people want uh, the book, where's the best place to go to get it? Also, there's an audible version, we should say, read by the author. It's fantastic. Yeah, I filmed um, it here, so actually, you where we're doing this conversation. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah it's, it, it's terrific. Um, yeah, where's the best place to send people and uh, and to follow your work more generally? Yeah, you can get it all over the place. I mean, I love Bookshop. Uh, I really appreciate Barnes & Noble, uh, where you can actually buy it in person. Amazon, of course. Um, but yeah, the audiobook was was... It was fun to do. Um, and was it? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I really liked getting to read the book. Uh, it was taxing. <laughs> but people seem to really enjoy hearing from the author. They do. I do, certainly. I always think the book comes to, whatever the book is, it comes to life more when the author is reading it than, uh, than someone else. So kudos to you for doing that. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a very entertaining listen also. Um, okay. I think that's all we got. So, oh, your uh, Twitter handle also? 
by the oh, way? Oh, yeah. My X handle is Cash Hill. <laughs> Your X handle? Sorry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm Cash Hill basically everywhere on the internet. And then Cashmere Hill, of course, at the New York Times. Terrific. Or people can just uh, take a picture and, and Google it and search you. <laughs> find you everywhere. Pimize you. <laughs> okay, Cashmere, thanks so much for being here. Thank Appreciate you so it. much for having me on. This is a great conversation. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. We do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.